Hello and welcome back to our podcast, Where Do I Know Them From? As always, my name is Alexandra. And I'm Elizabeth. And this is the podcast where we watch every single movie that Sam Claflin has ever been in and report back to you. Elizabeth, take it away with some Letterboxd reviews. Oh boy. All right. With three and a half stars, we have... I can excuse the Brits' obsession with war movies as long as they keep putting Gemma Arterton in them. What? Then we mm. have three and a half stars again. All Dunkirk movies are valid, but Lord, if I don't hate that triple twist in the third act. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we have two and a half stars. They're shittiest. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, that last one was an allusion to the title of this film, which is Their Finest. And I have to agree, it wasn't their finest work. No one on this crew, cast, crew, production, has this been their finest work. No. In fact, this movie came out in 2016, and the director, Luna Scarefig, this is not the best film we've seen by her with Sam. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> she also directed The Riot Club, which you maybe remember from, oh my from God. a few weeks ago. That's so girl boss of her. Honestly, no, she's so valid for that. I Actually, it's all making sense now. <laughs> wow, okay, great. This movie was also screen written by Gabby Schiap. It was edited by Lucia Zucchetti. Wow, look at the women in film. Literally. Holy shit. Well, it's about a woman in film. It is. <laughs> so you know that the crew I'm just, had to match. I'm just surprised that 2016 was that self-aware, you yeah. know? like Honestly, we would have had to comment on it if they hadn't had as many true. women. Well, in the now we're going to have to cut the podcast down to like 30 minutes because we won't have anything else to say. Oh, my God. Well, listen to this. Actually, everyone involved that I am going to tell you about was a woman because it was also based on the 2000. <laughs> novel Their Finest Hour and a Half by Lisa Evans. It okay. was 117 minutes. I know, honestly, a very aggressive title that the extra and a half had to be on there. But this movie is mostly acted in by men. Gemma Arterton plays Catherine Cole, or as we later learn, Catherine Pugh. She falls in love with Sam Claflin, who plays Tom Buckley, but she begins the movie Fake Married to Jack Houston, who plays Ellis Cole. And other notable scumbags. <laughs> and other notable scumbags, literally. He's so hot, but if we're evil. <laughs> um, Helen McCrory plays Sophie Smith. We know, of course, from Loving Vincent with Saoirse Ronan. Eddie Marson plays Sammy Smith, her brother. Rachel Sterling plays Phil Moore. Richard E. Grant plays Roger Swain. Jeremy Irons plays the Secretary of War, Anthony Eden. Bill Nye plays Ambrose Hilliard. And Jake Lacey plays Carl Lundbeck. So crazy that so much of Jeremy Irons' filmography is British politicians. From the 1940 period piece. <laughs> I think also it's important to note that several other actors from this movie went on to become more famous in film that has come out in the last year or so. Mm -hmm. But in this movie, they had very, very minor parts. So I didn't want to include them. Slay. Yeah, like the girl from Eloise. Yeah, that's Eloise, Eloise like, Bridgerton. For example, Eloise Bridgerton is in this, as well as Nikolai Lansov from the new show Shadow and Bone. Wow. We are just ahead of the game. Yeah, honestly. This movie also, Another Woman, was scored by Rachel Portman, and Slay. it was produced by Elizabeth Carlson, Amanda Posey, and Stephen Woolley. Imagine being the only man to produce this movie. Wow. <laughs> honestly, that's like how, that's like at the end of She Said, where we get produced by Brad Pitt. Yeah. Also, Women Talking, produced by Brad Pitt. Yeah. <laughs> An apolo a male apologist. <laughs> it was also produced by Wales Screen, Pinewood Pictures, BBC Films, Ingenious Media, Hanway Films, Ripken Productions, Filmy Vast, Filmgate Films, Wild Gaze Films, Number Nine Films, and Cutting Edge Group. That's a lot of producers. Yeah. Probably because the movie is about production. Oh, fair. They all wanted to get in on that. And the movie was distributed by Lionsgate. Our boy Sam is kind of a Lionsgate king. He's he is. kind of. He's got a lot of big movies. Yeah. Fair. Okay. Well, yours is better. <laughs> <laughs> they do own his ass. 
<laughs> he's like a studio actor from the 1930s. He's like, just put him in. Oh, yeah. we need a blonde boy? Put that one in. Yeah, yeah. this is our resident blonde man. This is our resident, <laughs> our resident Brit. <laughs> Your very basic plot is that during the Blitz of World War II, a female screenwriter, Katrin Cole, works on a film celebrating England's resilience as a way to buoy a wary populace's spirits. Her efforts to dramatize the true story of two sisters who undertook their own maritime mission to rescue wounded soldiers are met with mixed feelings by dismissive all-male staff. Pretty good. It's important to note that Katrin Cole is not experienced as a film writer. She is only experienced as a comic writer. She used to write comic strips. And she's brought into the Ministry of Information Film Division because they're working on propaganda films to boost morale and also the secondary goal to try and bring the Americans into the war. Sam's got a lot of propaganda movies. Yeah, he a lot does. Of movies about, and a lot of movies about movies. Yeah, very meta of him. Mm-hmm. So she's brought in post-Dunkirk, post the Dunkirk evacuation to... Famously attended by Harry Styles and Christopher <laughs> Nolan. Yeah, famously. Mm-hmm. To try and make this story or to make a story into a nationally rousing propaganda film that doesn't look and reek of propaganda so they're trying to be subversive about it Mm, fake her first job is to go interview these two sisters the starling sisters who were recently in like a newspaper article for their venture across dunkirk and their dad's stolen boat and they came back with soldiers on the ship she finds out from the sisters that this story is fake, that they didn't actually even make it, and that they rescued soldiers only because they were falling off of a boat, which was already yeah, on their way well, back. Yeah, well, that it was like a half-truth, that they yeah. tried to get to Dunkirk, and their boat stalled, and they couldn't keep going, so they picked up some soldiers that were floating. Yeah, exactly. Katrin hears this, says, okay, I acknowledge this half-truth, and I also hear the feminism, and so therefore I'm going to take this and make it a movie. So she pitches this, it gets options as a film, and she and Sam Claflin sit down to write this phenomenal script. And much of the movie is them writing the script and then rewriting the script as they film the movie. Yeah. Somewhere along the way there, we learn that she is not actually married to Ellis Cole. She is, in fact, I think they're common law married by this point, but they've just been living together, not like with a formal ceremony. Mm -hmm. And we also learn that Ellis Cole's a freaking scumbag who is cheating on her, and so... Sam Claflin's character, Buckley, has been falling in love with her this whole time. He proposes to her. She says, no, you've been really mean. (laughs) And he proposed (laughs) to me in in a cruel way. And so I'm not taking that option. But then she regrets this and rewrites their ending. This is part one and two of the triple twist is that she is not married to that man. Yes. Tom Buckley is in love with her. Yes. And then finally. And then finally, Tom Buckley fucking dies. Yeah, well, first, she rewrites their ending, like Alexandra said, and I interrupted her, and that was rude. And then they reunite. He reads this alternate ending of their story, and he's like, ah, ha, ha, okay, like, we can, like, make out in the film studio. Just stay here. I'll be right back. And then he dies. Yeah, so he's walking away to, like, try and resolve a brief filming crisis with their lead actor, Ambrose Hilliard, and he's intending to come right back so they can, like, sneak off to go have sex or, like, make out or something. And as he is walking away from her, he turns back. Very cute, very cute moment. I was like, wow, movie could end right there. But instead, like deus ex machina for evil, a filming tower falls down and kills him. (laughs) The whole screen blacks out for a second. And then we see distant and silent, a body, his being extracted from the rubble, covered with a blanket and then taken away. And then we see his broken glasses on the ground and she picks them up. Then the movie keeps going. And then your heart is broken, shattered. Much like his glasses. Much like his glasses. And you're very upset. 
and you don't even know why you have to watch 20 more mo- more minutes of this movie. Yeah. The rest of the movie is just her, like, picking up the pieces and, like, continuing to be a film writer. They finish such. the movie. There's, like, a problem with the movie, and they finish writing it, and yeah. Bill Nighy's character asks her to come back and write for him on this movie script that he has been pretty much given. They pretty much say, Ambrose, we want you to be in this movie we don't care what the movie is. You can write it all by yourself. And so he's like, that's so funny since I am not a movie writer. I need Gemma Arterton's character. I need Catherine Pugh Mm -hmm. to come help me write this movie. And then they write a nice little movie together. They do. And she just is fine. You know, like she continues to do her job and make propaganda for the British state. (laughs) Yeah. With her scumbag artist husband having hit the bricks. So yeah, as you can tell, Elizabeth and I did not love the ending of this movie. We thought that it was dumb. And that the movie was too long. (laughs) Now, listen, Alexandra, we watched this yesterday, and I really think I've come around on the ending. Okay. I don't think that Tom Buckley should have died. Very sad. And actually, here's what it is. I actually think that it would have been fine if Tom Buckley died. I think it's useful for the plot in that it makes it not about their love. It makes it about her. Mm -hmm. But I also think that I don't like that the second they get together... He is dead. Felt bad to me. Felt annoying. What I I really hated about it is the way that he died in that the tower just fell on him and it felt like it was coming out of nowhere. As a helpful device for us, the audience, you kind of see the tower start to fall before the lights go out. Like it's kind of wavering because a bomb has hit the building and like you kind of see things shaking. So like you know that it's going to fall down. But I'm just like, sir, just tell him to move, Catherine Pugh. (laughs) I don't know. It was very upsetting. While we've seen bombing throughout the film, and, like, it's been a narrative because they're making this movie during the Battle of Britain, Mm -hmm. it just feels like it was never a plot device before this. Like, they never mentioned this is going to be a problem for us filming. So it just kind of felt very randomly dropped in. Oh, see, I feel like it is pretty consistently peppered throughout to the point that I was like, there's no way that Sam Claflin's character does not get dead from the Blitz. Just because, like, one of the first things that her husband, uh, Ellis guy, says to her is, like, if there's a bombing, I want you to get in the tube station. Which, as you all remember from our atonement episode, does not very much work out for people in the tube station. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. Anyway, like, that's one of the first plot points we get from him. And then also a lot of her, like, friends and family members are consistently losing people throughout the story. Tom Buckley is kind of cheating death because he's, like, in his office still working on... Too busy to die. Yeah, he's, like, too busy to die. He's, like, working on the script while the bombs are happening around him, and he turns up his Victrola (laughs) so that he can't hear them, and he's instead listening to his little record, which, like, okay, it's so Gen Z of him. (laughs) The bombs can't kill you if you can't hear them. (laughs) Honestly, just drowning out the chaos through your little albums. But, yeah, he... I feel like the bombs are peppered in there so that, like, there's no other way the movie could have ended. Like, he's got to he's gotta pass away, unfortunately. I just I feel like his death could have been less quick. I, like, I don't know. It, whatever. It was... I think that I might have been upset about it because it was good. No. Here's the deal. <laughs> he should not have died on the set. He should have died the night before during the bombing. Oh. I think the movie would have been stronger overall if she had never seen him again. She rewrote their ending, and then we he didn't come back. Like, we just saw her grief from that. Yeah, that would have been more devastating. I think, But you I need a happy like, ending, Alexandra. That's what we learned from the producers of this film. The movie was still happy at the end. Like, she still, like, you know, went off and did her girl boss writing job. That's true. Anyway, 
Yeah, I just feel like the mechanics of it. I think that her and Tom realizing their feelings for each other, though, is like part of the resolution of her and Ellis falling apart, though. That's fair. Which is not very fair. People can resolve romantic relationships without finding a new romantic relationship to be in. But I think very much for her, like, Buckley and Ellis Cole are loyals for each other, right? So, like, the fact that she has, like, kind of moved on from this one toxic relationship into something better is kind of, like, a resolution there. Plus, don't you want to see them kiss? Yeah. I do. Smooch. Too bad we didn't get to see them kiss more. It was it was a lot of kissing for the only time they've ever kissed. That's fair. That's a good point. Yeah, and for the 1940s. And also for for at work. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a, a lot. An office romance on Maybe, steroids. Oh my god, they were they <laughs> He went to horny jail again. <laughs> literally, I, I was thinking about this on the way Stop here. Stop punishing Sam for being horny. That yes. Sam Coughlin routinely either dies in his films or comes awfully close like that he <laughs> Perhaps in the right club he should have died is what I'm saying. Like, Whoa. He has very traumatic events and mm-hmm. he often gets gets dead. He does in, often get dead. In a dead. not cool way for me. Damn. Yeah. Well. But we've gotten kind of far into discussing what we do and do not like about this movie without even telling you what other people think about this movie. Yeah. Metacritic has given it a 76 with a user score of 6.3. The Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter has not ranked this movie at all, mm. which I feel like is usually telling, but this is kind of a big movie. And the audience on the Rotten Tomatoes website gave it a 71% with Letterboxd to 3.3. So it seems like people are kind of on the whole feeling positively towards this movie, but don't love it. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of how I'm at, too. Yeah, I think we probably put it somewhere in there, too. Yeah. Girl boss. Girl boss. That's right. And on the topic of girl boss, actually, <laughs> let's let's just dive right in and talk about the gender. Yeah. Immediately, it was very apparent that this movie was going to be about gender. Yeah, this one's for the girls. It is for the girls. Because Katrin Cole... Okay, so we start off the movie with Sam Claflin, this character, like, with Tom Buckley, watching a very bad propaganda movie. And the bad propaganda movie is using women... So, like, all the propaganda that we see throughout this entire thing is using women as a central character, notably because all the men are gone off fighting, so we can't have men at home doing doing the movies because it's unrealistic. Mm-hmm. So I feel like Sam Claflin immediately knows, like, we have to use women as our central dialogue, therefore we need to get a woman in here to write them better because no one in this movie thinks that they're good. And so he mm-hmm. looks in the slop, what he calls the women's dialogue section of comic strips. He invites Katrin to come up and, like interview for this position she gets it but she thought she was going to be applying for a secretary post which i think is also very telling of like the gender dynamic at work here Mm -hmm. and that she didn't think even though she is a comedic writer that she was going to be good enough or qualified enough to get a job as an actual screenwriter rather that she was going to be a screenwriter's assistant or a secretary Mm -hmm. also when she first goes home from getting this job we immediately see her like very run down very shabby apartment and her struggling artist husband and it just seems like he might have a bit of a problem with her working and particularly working because he does not have a job and he was actually just denied a job because his art is too fucking depressing yeah his art is too dark for the british government they said no no not for us yeah yeah it is kind of weird in that like Buckley starts the movie, like, right out of the gate, very misogynistic. Like, he is not interested in content for women. He knows that he needs to use it due to, like, war rationing, right? Like, this is what we're left with. And he keeps calling women's dialogue slop. And uh, I don't know. What does she say about the dog? I don't understand the dog quote. He said to her that 
basically like we wouldn't hire a famous screenwriter to write woof woof for a dog. People just know that that's what they say. And so that's his logic for we don't need to hire someone good to write for women because nothing that they say matters. When she's like, what's the deal? Why am I coming in on this? Yeah. Got you. I understand. Which is not very nice of him. Not, Especially since yes. later he decides that she is good at her job. Yeah. And he says the work is good and that she's mustard. Yeah. I'm going to start saying that. <laughs> <laughs> at the end, he was ketchup, though. Stop. Alexandra, I'm leaving the pod. This is my official departure. I can't believe you would say that. Sorry. The disrespect. There was no on-screen blood. You're right. Yes. Anyway, he be hating women, and <laughs> that unfortunately means that we need to add that to a consistent theme across Sam Claflin's work, yeah. right up there with Alistair Ryle. Uh, but eventually, Tom Buckley turns his act around, unlike Alistair Ryle. I feel like it's important that we get a lot of montage scenes in this movie in which Tom Buckley visibly sees her working hard. Mm-hmm. pushing back against him, like mm-hmm. resisting his tyrannical rule in the screenwriting office. And also he sees her doing good work. Yeah. yeah. I think that a lot of his worldview comes from like how movies work and like he's supposed to represent that there's rules to screenwriting, mm-hmm. right? Because he says a lot of things like girls don't want to be the hero. They want to be had by the hero and like to have the hero. And that, like, this is what girls do in a movie. Like, a girl can't fix the boat because that's what men do. And it's not what audiences want. It's right? not what audiences want. And this idea that, like, there's rules to a story and that you need to follow those rules is very interesting. Yeah, I feel like also this movie is, of course, about World War II. But I feel like it's important that this movie is also right at the cusp of the change in advertising to start recognizing women as the primary consumers. Yeah. And so it's important that Sam's character comes to the realization that women want to see women written well and women doing important things. Yes. Notably, right about this time, people in advertising are starting to realize that, like, women control the buying decisions for their home because their husbands are out making money so they don't have time to decide, like, what laundry detergent they buy, right? And this reluctance to adopt women as an audience is very interesting to me. (laughs) And women as an actor. Yeah. Because throughout, they are continually rewriting the script until basically the very end of the movie. Just because, like, various offices say this is reflecting bad on England for X reason. Like, our engines can't fail because that would make our engineering look bad. Yeah. Or they want to send it to America and it's not American enough. Yeah. They they won't really. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that they change is that throughout the movie, she is constantly campaigning for the girls in the story, like the Starling sister characters, Mm -hmm. to be allowed to pilot the boat home rather than have a man pilot it back for them. Yeah. Especially given that they piloted it there. So they can obviously pilot it backwards. And in the movie, they pilot it there. And they do. They end up. Yeah. He finally makes those concessions. Like he gives her a sherry and also says, yes, the girls can pilot the boat home. Like that's fine. So, yeah, I think it's honest. It's a huge learning opportunity for him and the film industry. Yeah. In the 40s. Yeah. But also the setting of the war is important, not just for like the changing attitudes, but also for the content, right? Like so much of this movie is about the making and the production of propaganda and Mm -hmm. like the manipulation of truth. Mm -hmm. And you said earlier that Buckley is sort of the stand in for the film industry and like the idea that there are rules in the film industry. But he's also the stand in for like jadedness and realism. In mm-hmm. that when we see someone reacting to the news that their son, cousin, whatever has died on leave rather than on the front, Sam says it's never for anything. 
when she says, uh, like, yes. he didn't die for anything. He just died, you know, being hit by a tram instead of by a bullet. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an interesting dichotomy that he doesn't believe in the war, but he does believe in propaganda. I don't necessarily know that he believes in propaganda, but I think he believes in the power of storytelling. Yeah, and the power of art. And the power of art. And that because nothing is real and nothing is ever for anything, right, that movies and stories offer people an opportunity to have something. You know, like, they become the reason that you are doing something, especially Mm -hmm. on the home front. They serve as that, like, visual manifestation of the cause, right? Yeah. At the beginning of the movie, when we first are introduced to this project of the propaganda film, the Minister of Information says that they are aiming for authenticity and optimism. And this yeah. is kind of a code word throughout the film for, like, what they're going for. Ultimately... It's their vision board. It is their vision board. <laughs> Ultimately, they kind of turn a little bit away from this in that Anthony Eden is starting to tell us, like, we need not just authenticity and optimism, but we need these explicit purposes. We need morale raising. We need a good reflection on Britain, and we need the Americans to join in. So we have, like, these explicit stated goals. But we're also aiming, like... Their goal here is to tell true stories that are optimistic, that, like, show Britain winning the war, or at least good things happening for Britain in the war. And while Buckley doesn't agree, he does know how to write that story. Mm -hmm. And so he takes the, like, bare-bones facts of the twins' story, which is they stole a boat, they went to Dunkirk, they had an engine failure. They bring those boys home. And they bring those boys home. So we have, like, four key elements that must happen. And just the way that they were riffing on the story and, like, saying, okay, so we need a man. Why are they going over? They need to be retrieving a man. What makes him different? He saved a dog. Like, we need to put in these various elements. And, like, that every part of it is important, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that his name can't be whatever. It has to be Johnny because that's the most heroic name, right? And that, like you mentioned before, like, the engine can't fail because that would look bad about English engineering. That all parts of it have to service the propaganda message. Like, the idea that English people and the English cause is superior. Right down to the love triangle that they introduce. Like, there is these twin sisters and they're going over because initially both of them are in love with this Johnny character. But then we introduce the American character just kind of like to get the Americans on board to give them someone to identify with. And they introduce in this love triangle the issue that she has to choose the British man, but it can't be in a way that says that the American man is bad. And it can't be in a way that says that the, the British, British man, man is, is the wrong bad. choice. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of a very political propaganda movie about love. Yeah, that part is really interesting to me because she's married to whoever they're going back for, right? Or they're engaged. No, they're like, yeah, they're going to get together. They're an established couple. And then the third player enters the chat, and that's what makes the love triangle. And part of the thing is, like, that she can't leave the British guy for the American guy because that's morally corrupt. Our heroine can't be morally corrupt. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how all the tropes work together and what has changed and what hasn't in storytelling. It is a good comparison. And also, throughout these numerous rewrites and throughout these various ways in which, like, different government departments are telling them the story has to be this way for this X reason for the war effort, the story is manipulated so far away from the original Starling Sisters story that they have this explicit conversation about, like, what is truth. And Sam at one point says, don't confuse facts with truth, and for Christ's sakes, don't let any of them get in the way of the story. Yeah. And that the story, the propaganda story the motivational, optimistic, authentic story is going to blaze through, it's going to bulldoze through any amount of facts and truth to be the new facts and truth, right? Because once it's on film, it's done. It's true. 
that conversation is also very fun for me because like they're having a serious conversation because they learn what Catherine already knows, which is that that story didn't actually happen Mm -hmm. and that it was misreported in the paper. And so now their story is not based on a true story. But then Catherine and Tom Buckley are like, actually, yes, it is. They still went over there. They still brought the boys back. The engine still stalled. Like, all the parts are true that matter. And they have, like, what Alexander said is a really compelling conversation about truth and storytelling. They also say, importantly, that even if you can't say it's based on a true story, you can say that it's based on a thousand true stories. Approximately 380,000. Yeah. He's, he cites the number of men that came back from Dunkirk, and he says it's those many true stories. Uh-huh. Which I thought was a pretty metal line. And then he leaves. Uh, Tom Buckley really likes to drop a metal line and then leave. Literally. He does. It's very dramatic of him. Yes, right down to the point where he dies. He's like, stay right here. And then he dies. Stay right here. I'll be right back. Fuck you. Oh, God. It hurts. Uh... Yeah, I feel like this movie also did a good job of layering comedy in with very serious discussions about, like, what is truth? How does propaganda function? What do people need during a war? Etc. And, like, also, it even gets into the issue of agency and, like, who controls the story because at multiple points, because they are continually rewriting and there are so many opportunities for the government to interject, there are also opportunities for other people to interject, like Katrin and Tom Buckley go back and forth about to what degree the women in the story can be in charge, but also the actors have opinions. Mm-hmm. Oh, they be having opinions. Yeah, particularly Ambrose Hilliard, played by Bill Nye, who I have to say is the single best character he saved the movie for me. He's excellent. Yeah. And he has, like, such a good arc, right? Because he comes he in, does. like, very, I don't want to play this old dude, like, he's just going to die. And then he totally, with the help of Catherine, like, completely transforms the character and, like, becomes almost a central figure in the story. Yeah, he says to her, actually, like, between you and I, we'll have them weeping in the aisles. Yeah, Because he wants to play, like, such a compelling character who has, like, a very moving death, and he, like, helps her get there. Which is crazy, because the first time we meet him, it's because he suggests a rewrite to the script, and Catherine says, no, if we put that in there, then it won't make my joke later work. Mm -hmm. And so they're they're on a bit of, they're having a tiff. Yeah. Yeah. They're having a row, and then by the end of the movie, oh they're God. the dream team. They are, and they go into business together to make a movie about air raid wardens. Yeah. Which now I want to see that movie, because Ambrose is great. Yes. <laughs> Give me a spinoff with just those two. Literally. So yeah, I thought the acting was exceptional. I particularly love the scene where Bill Nighy gets to sing Wild Mountain Time. Straight up. It was beautiful. Excellent song. It was an excellent, Moving. it was an excellent song. Yeah. Bill and Nye. Eloise Bridgerton also sings something that was pretty good, too. But yeah. Bill Nye, he really stole the show. And he was like, oh, I couldn't possibly sing. And everyone was like, we all know you want to sing. Yeah. Bill Nye in this movie is me. <laughs> he does diva surprisingly well. He's done it in a couple other films, too. Yeah. I feel like, though, since we're kind of getting into a bit of the technical aspects of the acting, I have to say that other than Bill Nye, not everyone else was doing a great job. Jim Arderton okay. in particular, I didn't love what she was doing. Her voice was very strange. She had a very delicate affect. Yeah. Like, it was very high and light. And I think that that was supposed to make her more feminine. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it needed that because of all of the other elements that make her feminine. Also, there's more than one expression of femininity. Yeah. I also feel, though, that, like, Gemma and Sam did not have excellent chemistry. Correct. Their romance was... Like, I saw it happening. Many of the lines were very cute. Some of the actions were cute, but I was just, like, unimpressed by their screen time together. I wasn't sold. Yeah. That said, though, she and Bill Nye, chemistry off the mm-hmm. charts. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Unparalleled. 
A lot of the Letterboxd reviews that we saw for this movie argued that Gemma, uh, her character, Catherine Cole, would have had a better, stronger relationship with the actual secretary, like the position that she was applying for, who is not explicitly, but very heavily suggested to be lesbian. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people were like wanting to see that make angle it gay. explored more. Yeah, make it gay. Which only would have made it longer, but would have saved us the death of Tom Buckley. That's true. But then the secretary would have had to die. No. Someone had to die. No. Women are too smart to die. You're right. Actually. Sorry. Forgot to tell you. Just like in the 2003 Peter Pan. Yes. Just like in 2003. (laughs) Girls are too smart to fall out of their prams. Therefore, none of them exist in Neverland. Yeah. Solid reasoning. Solid reasoning. I think that possibly one reason or maybe like an outcome of the romance not really seeming to stick is that the first third of the movie where we're like establishing this blows. The last third of the movie blows. The middle third of the movie where they are falling in love, fine. Passable. Excellent, actually. Are you kidding me? You're saying you don't want to watch 45 more minutes of Sam Coughlin eating fish and chips out of newspaper? I would. That was was the best part of the movie. But I just feel like since that part of the movie was their romance, since their romance wasn't that solid, I feel that the middle part of the movie also could have been better. Yeah, for sure. But yes. Otherwise, I think the acting was good. Jeremy Irons does what Jeremy Irons does best, which is play Anthony Eden and or um, Neville Chamberlain. Yeah, it was really well cast. (laughs) Helen McCrory was excellent. I don't know why she was doing an accent since her brother was not doing an accent, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was. Oh, he was? Okay. They're doing some variety of, like, Eastern Europe, like, German, Mm -hmm. Russian, whatever. Yeah. Um, It actually can't be German. Uh, (laughs) You're right. We're fighting the Jerry's, Alexandra. It couldn't possibly be German. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, technically, it was cohesive. It was all very dark, which I didn't love, except when they're in Ireland. Yeah. Or no, when they're in Devon. Then everything is more light because it's outside. Yeah. They need that good light to film. The movie was super dark. And also everyone was really mumbling. So it was so hard to like follow the plot because I just like, first of all, I didn't care in the beginning. So it was hard to pay attention to the establishing parts. And then it was so hard to hear everyone and see everyone. Yeah. Later though, when they finally turned the lights on, it was not very saturated like everything was super pale Mm -hmm. and you know it's maybe because of the war and like we have to (laughs) ration everything including the colors yeah but yeah you can't you can't waste time on color (laughs) in the war time but also they do make the movie in color just in case you guys were wondering that's true so it's a big enough deal to use color footage by the end of the film though like okay so at the very very end of the film we see Gemma Arterton's character going into a film theater to watch the movie that she has created Mm -hmm. and that is I think the most saturated like the most the highest use of yeah. color and it possibly is because she has finally found purpose in her life and like something that she wants yeah. to do and is good at and it's like fulfillment it's moving there's a line like at the end of the movie where the narrator who i think is johnny but might be that weird american guy is like it's all about the right ending the right ending for england which is kind of heavy-handed i think which demonstrates that propaganda is corny but is also like a reminder that okay it's it's okay it's okay girlies that mm-hmm. we killed off sam coughlin because <laughs> It will be okay because it's the right ending for Catherine Pugh, Gemma Arterton. You're so right that it is meant to be very soothing. And everything post his death is also supposed to be kind of soothing in that like, she gets the career ending that she wants. She has a good relationship working with Ambrose. She is finally confident in her skills and confident enough in her skills to stand up to people and like advocate for her version of the plot where the girls save the boat instead of a boy. Yeah. And it's also supposed to be kind of comforting because Ghost Sam shows up. Yeah, like, he does come to her and tells her that she's mustard. He does. He tell he repeats her own lines right back at her, and yeah. I don't know. I just I thought that that part was really corny. It was, but it was nice. Yeah, it's a romance. Yeah, it has to be nice. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end. We have, and I've arrived at the conclusion that this is a 
three and a half star movie. Okay. It was cute. I would watch it again, but it was not good. I would give it three stars, and I would say much like the movie they are producing, it could use some editing. Yeah. But I thought it was good and girl boss. Repeatedly, Sam Claflin's character, Tom Buckley, says to Catherine Cole, he says, your dialogue is good, but it's too long. Cut out the half that you don't need. Yes, and, and this movie needed to cut out the half it didn't need. Yeah, it did. It could have been far shorter. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. So yeah, I think Sam, though, decent job. Not his best. I'm going to give him three and a half, and I think it's because his eyebrows were blocked. Yeah, he's wearing, throughout the movie, a terrible look for him. His hair is combed back and slicked back, so he looks not like himself. Which, I guess, good job on the makeup department. He Mm -hmm. looked different. But he also has these tiny glasses in the very 1940s style, so you can't see his eyebrows. Yeah. And that really hindered him. And a mustache, which before when I said I didn't care for facial hair on Sam Claflin, I'd like to reiterate that. And especially the mustache. Yes. The mustache, not a good look. Overall, the movie, the costuming, not a good look for Sam. Maybe that was just to make his passing easier. (laughs) You can't have someone too hot die. Yeah, yeah. Can't kill off anybody too hot. Yeah. Well, that's the end. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you check us out on Instagram at Where Do I Know Them From, and we'll see you next week. Girl, boss. 